Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. We gather together every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., both online and in person. Now, I'm not sure where you are at online, but there's multiple ways to connect with us on Sunday mornings. Uh, You can search Faith on Hill in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube, and you can subscribe to all of our online content, including Sunday mornings, 20-minute Bible study, Starting Points podcast. That's all there. We do have a live stream of our online service at faithonhill.com every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. I know last Sunday there was a a technical difficulty, and uh, we put that up on our social media, which you can follow at Faith on Hill Instagram and Facebook, uh, so you would know about that. But we had some technical difficulties with the video, and it was delayed and didn't get on the live stream. That's just the way it goes. In person, though, we gather at 10.30 a.m. at our building on Hill Road. We have Kids Church. Uh, We gather together for worship through song, prayer, Uh, We study the Bible together, and then throughout the week, we have youth group on Tuesday nights at 7 p.m., and we have small groups that meet throughout the week, and our online small group is starting back up. It had a little summer break, but it's starting back up this Wednesday at 7 p.m., and you can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com for more information, but the small groups is basically, uh, uh, it it connects with... uh, different people. We go through questions from the Bible study on Sunday morning. And so if you've watched this Bible study, you'll know what we're going to talk about in the small groups. And so the Wednesday night online small group is on Zoom. We have other small groups that meet in person throughout the week. And again, you can email smallgroupsoffaithonhill.com for more information. We're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 2 today as we finish the story of the life of the prophet Elijah. So if you turn there, we'll continue to study God's word together. Well, if you've been around the church long enough, and I don't mean just Faith on Hill, but I mean the church in general, you, you know that there's certain parts of the Bible where certain sermons get preached. Um, you know, and, and sometimes as somebody who might be in the congregation, I'll, I'll hear the preacher say, we're going to turn to this passage, and I'll go, oh, okay, I kind of have a pretty good guess what's going to be talked about. On the flip side, as Bible teacher. You know, there'll be times where I'll come to the passage that we're going to study next week and go, okay, I know what I'm supposed to talk about here. 2 Kings chapter 2 is one of those chapters that preachers pull up for certain occasions, and there's two specific ones we're going to talk about, neither of them. Uh, Either people talk about passing the torch, uh, passing the mantle, and that's a big uh, point of emphasis in 2 Kings chapter 2. We talked about that a few weeks ago in 1 Kings uh, when Elijah got his marching orders from God on top of the mountain. Uh, You can go back and check that out, Um, but we're not going to talk about that as much. The other thing that gets talked about in 2 Kings chapter 2 is the rapture, and that's a, a, this is kind of a big rapture chapter. Uh, We're not particularly going to talk about that either. What we are going to talk about this morning are things that aren't in the Bible, things that might be in the Bible, and things that are in the Bible, things that are not in the Bible, things that might be in the Bible, and things that are in the Bible. Verse 1 says that when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Now, you might say, wait a minute, a whirlwind? 
Where is this coming from? That Elijah is going to be taken up to heaven? We, we don't know this. We have to recognize that we're reading, as a modern audience, ancient texts. And so the way that they present information is different than the way that we would expect it to be done. The other week I was explaining to one of my kids about how uh, all movies have three-act structures, generally speaking. There might be some art house independent film that doesn't. But generally speaking, every big motion picture has a three-act structure. You know, act one sets everything up. Act two, they kind of get to a point of uh, there's some character development and then they have to make a decision. And then act three is where the, the climax of the story plays out. There's the big battle, the big showdown, uh, the big victory, the big defeat, depending on what type of, of story it is. But they're generally speaking in three acts, and that's how we expect things to be presented to us. And then when a TV show, a book, a movie, something presents information in a way that's foreign or un uncommon to us, generally speaking, we bump against it. We don't like it. Things are out of order. Why couldn't they just make it normal? Um, and that happens. So... <laughs> The whirlwind, the writer is presenting this thing. It came about that the Lord was going to catch Elijah up in the whirlwind. And you're going, wait, what? Because it catches your attention. What's going on here? This is going to get unpacked. So then in verse 2, it says, Elijah said to Elisha. And remember, Elisha for six years was Elijah's assistant. And God had told Elijah, you're going to anoint him to be your successor. But that didn't happen for six years. And for six years, they have ministered together. They've traveled together. They're, they are close uh, co-laborers, fellow travelers, maybe even friends. And Elijah says to Elisha, stay here. The Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So then they go down to Bethel. Now, we just go, okay, well, he's sticking around and, you know, whatever. But in their culture, in the original audience's culture, for an assistant or a servant or an apprentice to say to their master, I'm not going to do what you say, is unthinkable. It's unheard of. The idea of respecting our elders is something that is very foreign to modern Western culture, but is still incredibly prevalent the rest of the world over. The majority of the world still has respect for elders. The majority of the world still has respect uh, for the, the, the person in authority over them. And so here, um, in, fa in fact, actually, before we go on, this is something mildly interesting, but I remember um, there's a James Bond film where there's a Korean guy as a bad guy, and this is about 20 years ago. And I, and I remember hearing that people in Korea didn't care that it was a Korean guy as the bad guy. They cared that the Korean guy dishonored his father. Because in their culture, it was so abhorrent to them for him to like betray and dishonor his father. That was the thing they pushed back, like no Korean would do that. So we have this idea in Western culture, Elisha just says, no, I'm going to do what I want. And we just go, okay, yeah, he's got to do what's right for him. He's got to find his own truth. But the rest of the world, the majority of people living and whoever ever lived would find this shocking. What the writer is doing is getting you hooked if you're the original audience. It's getting us a little confused as modern people, but the idea that, wait a minute, Elijah's going to be taken up in heaven in a whirlwind. We don't know about this. What's happening? And now Elisha is dishonoring, supposedly, his master. So the company of prophets at Bethel came out to Elisha and asked, do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? So apparently they got to Bethel, and this company of prophets comes out and says, do you know that the Lord is going to take your master? 
Yes, I know, Elisha replies, so be quiet. So Elisha knows that Elijah's being taken from him. Oh, now we have context. We have the answer to one of our mysteries. Elijah is going to be taken and they know it. And Elisha says, I'm not leaving you as long as you are here. It's not disrespect. It's not disloyalty. It's actually great loyalty, great love, great commitment between these two partners in the ministry of God. And if you were an ancient audience, the original audience, you would have heard, wait a minute, he's disobeying his master. And then you get this new piece of information. Oh my goodness, plot twist. He is actually showing great love and loyalty to Elijah. And then this school, the prophets comes out and kind of gives us this answer. So then in verse four, it says, Elijah said to him, stay here, Elisha. The Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. And then the company of prophets at Jericho went to Elisha and asked him, do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know. So be quiet. Then Elijah came to him and said, stay here because the Lord has sent me to Jordan. And he replied, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. And then 50 men from the company of prophets went and stood at a distance facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan River. And Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water with it, and the water divided right to left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what you can do before I am taken from you. And Elisha replied, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. What he's saying is, Elijah's saying, is there anything I can leave you with, give you, do for you before the Lord takes me? And Elijah, and Elisha just says, I want twice of the ministry that you had. I want twice of the strength that you have. I want to be used twice as much by God as you were used. And you could say, oh, this is being cynical. He just wants more power. But it's the purpose of wanting that power. He wants it to be used of God. And so he hears that. And Elijah said, you have asked a difficult thing. Yet, if you see me from where I am taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. And what Elijah is saying is, look, that's not mine to give. Whatever I did came from God. And if you want a double portion or even the same amount, that's up to the Lord. But I will say this. If you see me, if God allows you to see what happens, then you can know that God has heard your prayer. And that power will pass to you double. But if you don't, then just know that God said that's not for you. Okay, so as they're walking along together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses and horses of fire appeared separating the two of them. So this idea is they're walking together and then this chariot of fire and fiery horses comes in between them. So now they're separated by this, by this fire. And Elisha, uh, sorry, uh, they're separated by the two and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. And Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots, the horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. And then he took hold of the garment and he tore it in two. So he takes his own garment and he tears it in two. This is a sign of grief and mourning that he is now separated from somebody that he considers a father figure. He's separated from somebody he has great respect and loyalty and, and care for. And now he's grieving and he tears his cloak in two. 
And then, in verse 13, Elisha picks up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him and went back and stood at the bank of the Jordan River. Now, Elisha saw what happened. And Elijah had said, hey, if you see this, then I believe God will give you what you've asked for. And not just that, but God was gracious and gave a physical representation of his work in, in that the cloak that Elijah, Elijah wore fell and, and landed right there where Elisha could see it and grab it. So he takes it and he goes to the river and he struck the water with it. And he says, where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left and he crossed over. So what he is saying to God is, are you here with me the way that you were here with Elijah? Will I be equipped the way that Elijah was? Have you heard my prayer? Do I have a double portion of his spirit? And this is a really good test. Can I just do the same thing Elijah just did? So he goes, he does, and it happens. And when he struck the water, divided the right to left, and he crossed over. And the company of the prophets from Jericho, who were watching, said, the spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. So there's multiple confirmations of what God has done. Elijah had given testimony, if you see this thing, it will happen. Then the cloak falls at his very feet, and he uses it to strike the river and cross. And then the people who were watching recognize what God has done in passing the mantle on to Elisha. And then they went to meet him, and they bowed to the ground before him. Look, they said, we your servants have fifty able men. Let them go and look for your master. Perhaps the Spirit of the Lord has picked him and sent, picked him up and set him down on some mountain or in some valley. No, Elisha replied, do not send them. But they persisted until he was too embarrassed to refuse, so he said, send them. And they sent fifty men who searched for three days but did not find them. And when they returned to Elisha, he was staying in Jericho. And he said to them, did I not tell you, don't go. So, what's happening here? There are things that aren't, are in the Bible, things that might be in the Bible, things that are not in the Bible. Some things that are not in the Bible. This company of prophets, some of, if you have different versions or translations of the Bible, they might say sons of the prophets or school of the prophets. School of the prophets or sons of the prophets are mentioned directly three times. Here in 2 Kings and once in 1 Samuel. And then they're hinted at other places. Amos hints at it. Uh, there are other places where it kind of references them, but never directly calling them the school or the sons or the company of the prophets. They're not in the Bible. There's no biblical command for them to exist. When God was setting up the structure for the nation of Israel, he set up the Levitical priests, and he set up structure for um, you know, who would lead the people and how the people were to be divided in the 12 tribes and in which part of the, the nations. And they already had uh, divisions among the family of, of clans and sort of like uh, family leaders. And so that was all put in place. There was no structure for a school of the prophets. Moses talked about prophets coming, told the people what to do if a prophet came who was proved to be false spoke of a prophet coming who would be greater than himself. So Moses said, hey, you think I'm a good leader? There's one coming greater than me, and he's speaking of Jesus. And they had prophets. There's disagreement about who the first prophet recognized in the Bible is. Some say it's Enoch, others say it's Abraham. But there was a recognition of people speaking prophetically even in the, the day when the Israelites crossed the Red Sea and left on their journey to the Promised Land, and the law was established. But there's nowhere in the Bible 
that said, hey, you should establish a school for the prophets. Now, why is, why is it that these exist? And we see them in multiple places. They go to Bethel, and there's a company of prophets. They go to uh, Jericho, there's a company of prophets. They, 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 they keep seeing these guys appear, and there's like six or seven cities in the Bible that, where it's mentioned that a company or school of prophets existed. Who are they? Where do they come from? They're not in the Bible. How come they're there? There's two schools of thought, and I personally tend to think that both are true to some extent. One school of thought is that it's an actual school, that it was a place where people went who believed that God might be speaking through them or believed that God might have a specific calling on their life or believed that they needed to go deeper in their knowledge of God and so they could travel to one of these places in one of these cities and say, hey, I think God's working in my life. Can I come and, and learn from you and be tested by you? And you can help affirm or, or, you know, kind of clarify whether I do or don't have a calling. And there's a place for that. And you could see why such a thing would, would be created because you would have false prophets. So how do you know if somebody's really a prophet? Or maybe God's, you feel like God's moving in your life and then I'm not sure. So you're looking for clarity. There's another school of thought that says that these aren't actually schools so much as clubs or organizations. And if your father, grandfather, was a prophet, what do you do? In, in most cultures over the centuries, sons have followed their father's trade. You know, why is it that Smith is such a common last name? Why, why is it that uh, Thatcher is a common last name. There are these things that are, are common last names among English names. Well, it's because they were your job. Oh, you were John Thatcher, or you were, you know, William Smith. William the Smith became William Smith, and then now you are, you know, your son John, you're now John Smith, or you're now, you know, Roger Thatcher, or whatever. Or you're, there's other names like, you know, uh, Smithson, because you were the Smith's son, and then that just kind of kept traveling with you. You took your father's trade, generally speaking. You know, I was a woodcutter, my father was a woodcutter, my grandfather was a woodcutter, and my sons will be woodcutters, and so on and so on and so on. And I'm not mentioning daughters just because that's just not realistic to the times. So, you have this situation where what do you do if your father was a prophet? You don't have a trade, a family vocation to take up. Elisha had gotten rid of, all. he was in the business of, plowing and oxen and farming, but he gave all that up. We saw that a few chapters ago when Elijah said, hey, come, you're called by God to, to be, you know, take my role. So he gave it all up. Let's say he had a son. What does the son do? So the thinking is, is that these sons of the prophets might have sort of taken up the family business of being a prophet. And maybe it was really natural and organic and a good thing. For example, let's say that there was a prophet and Everybody knew that that prophet lived in Jericho. And you went and said, hey, can you inquire of the Lord for me? Uh, this has been going on, and I don't understand it. And can you just pray and ask God, and maybe God will give you an answer. And then you've been going, know that this prophet's there. You've been going, or somebody in your town has been going for years. And you've gotten to know him, and you've gotten to know his family. And then one day you show up, and you find out that the old prophet has died. But his son is there, who you've known his whole life. And you trust and you respect. He's a good kid. And now he's a good man. And the son says, I'm so sorry, but my father's not here. 
and you say, I've journeyed all this way. Will you pray for me? Will you inquire? And maybe the son just prays a prayer of blessing over them. Or maybe God does speak through the son. And, and uh, the Lord uses the son to give an answer to the inquiry. Also possible. And that son takes the ministry of the father. But maybe a grandson comes along. And the grandson starts taking the role of the prophet, even though God's not called them. God's not speaking to them. But they can kind of be good with people and carry on the, the performance, so to speak. And over generations, you know, what started as a natural thing, an organic thing, a thing that made sense because something that's doesn't make sense anymore. And that could well be what happened. One of the things that I have a lot of charity for are things that people in the Protestant church tend to knock about the Catholic or the Orthodox churches. Because if you read the history, you understand that there was maybe a good reason why something started. For example, when the Protestant Reformation happened, one of the most corrupt and sinful parts of the Catholic Church were the monasteries and the abbeys where the monks and the nuns lived. And uh, Thomas Kramer, who is a, a political sort of figure around King Henry VIII, he actually did a lot of work exposing the corruption, the greed, the immorality that was happening in these monasteries and in these abbeys. And you would find children living there that were the children of a nun or a, or a priest who had, you know, been fooling around. Or you would find, uh, they actually, when they went through, they found unmarked graves where they had, you know, to hide the children, they had killed them. And there was great wealth that had been collected. People who had taken vows of poverty had great wealth collected. Now, the, the monks in the monasteries actually started out as this thing where people were trying to seek God and trying to, trying to get serious about their faith. And they were trying to like get away from the, the junk in this world. And, and you read about the original monastic orders and, um, and the really like well-meaning reasons and, and godly reasons why people did this. And you go, okay, something started out good. It started out organic. It was this kind of just organic move that happened. And now it turned into something bad. Organizations that's like, why do you still exist? There's a lot of money, but I can't quite tell what you're doing with it. Now, that happens too, where a, a ministry happens. You know, maybe a ministry was founded in the 1950s, 1960s. You know, um, you know, Bill Williams Global Evangelism Ministry, or um, you know, John George's Ministry of Healing, or whatever. But they've been dead and gone for years. And now somebody else is running it. And it's not really clear what they're doing, but people have just been sending them checks for every month for years and years and years. And they don't really question it because it's still got the founder's name on the, on the door. Now, what I'm saying with all that is this. Something could start really good and get kind of messed up. And there are things that we don't have any kind of instruction for in the Bible. The school of the prophets might have been something that was really good that got kind of messed up. It might have been something that was really needed. And so they, they said, hey, you know what? Uh, we don't have a framework for what to do with this in our scripture. And they would have had the first five books, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Uh, they would have had some of the earlier histories of, of uh, Joshua and Judges. By this point, they would have known about you know, all the things with David and Saul. So they actually would have had a fair amount of scripture. And then they might have said, hey, we just don't have any framework. What do you do with these prophets? 
Um, and so they created these schools or these companies to deal with that. Now, a modern equivalent, there's plenty of those. I mentioned monks and monasteries. Protestants have their own traditions. We have, instead of monks and monasteries, we have parachurch organizations or nonprofits or whatever. And there's no framework for them in the Bible. Seminaries, nonprofits, parachurch organizations, there's no biblical basis for them. I went to Christian school for a good portion of my, my childhood. And, and I went to King's Elementary, Middle, and High School in Seattle. And King's was started in the late 1950s by a godly man named um, Mike Martin. Phenomenal guy. And what you did back then was you started these parachurch organizations. So he started a school. And the idea of the school was for kids that were kind of in trouble, that needed, you know, needed help, uh, needed, needed to, you know, get a good education, but also know about Jesus. So he started the school. Uh, he, he somehow got hold of this old uh, tuberculosis hospital that had been abandoned and unused. And, and so I went to high school in an old tuberculosis hospital, and there was a weird, that was a weird building, man. But as it went along, it went from being that sort of ministry to just kind of a standard, expensive private school. And I was the poor kid on scholarships at a rich kid's school. I'm thankful for the ministry of that school and the, the larger parachurch ministry that exists. There's actually multiple things. There's a Christian camp, and there's a radio station, and, so, and there's a senior home. So I went to high school, and there was a radio tower on our high school campus, and there were, you'd have to like, be careful driving into the parking lot because there was also a senior home, and they had a parking lot next to us, and so you'd have uh, you know, people in their, their later years walking along, and you had to kind of watch out for them because they'd call and complain, um, and, and you had this thing, but there's no framework for this. The idea of, of, of how God structures the church, they, they just kind of exist outside of this. And it's neither good nor bad, but it's just there. And it can start really naturally and organically, and it becomes something bad. Or it can be this thing where it's like, how do we deal with this? What do we do? There are things that aren't in the Bible. Practices and traditions. Um, we have a rule in our group of churches that for somebody to be an ordained elder, that's a lead pastor in one of our churches, they have to have a master's degree. That rule exists nowhere in the Bible. It's an un or an extra biblical rule. It's actually something I've argued against. Now, I went and got my master's degree so I could, you know, get in, but I argue against it. I don't think we should have, I think I'm all for education, and I think people should get, uh, learn as much as they can. But this idea that somebody has to go to seminary or get, get some sort of degree to be a, to be a pastor, I disagree with that. Amos, one of the prophets in the Old Testament, he starts out his writing by saying, I am neither, uh, a, you know, I was neither trained nor am I the son of a prophet. And what he is saying is, I'm not in the club, but God is speaking through me. And God showed me this vision and I'm going to share it. So there are things that are just practical things, things that aren't in the Bible. And it's like we have to navigate how do we structure things uh, because. You know, we're living in a world that's very different from, from the first century Mediterranean world, and we have to go through that. Then there are things that might be in the Bible. Now, for example, I said earlier that people use Elijah being caught up as sort of a picture of the rapture, and I, I can see what they're saying. This idea that there are certain people in the Bible who didn't die. The Bible says it is pointed for everyone to die once and then the judgment. But there are certain people that didn't die. Enoch walked with God and then was no more. Elijah was walking along and was caught up in the whirlwind. And in 
there are prophecies that indicate that Elijah will return. In fact, the disciples were expecting it, and they asked Jesus, hey, we think you're the Messiah, but the prophet Elijah hasn't returned yet. Jesus said to them, if you can accept it, John the Baptist operated in the spirit and the power of Elijah. But that was his first coming. What about his second coming? And we talked about that in the book of the Revelation, how there are these two witnesses that will show up in Jerusalem before Jesus returns. And many think that Elijah will be one of those witnesses. Now, it could be that there's a picture of the rapture. I personally believe in the rapture. I believe in the concept, the idea that all of the wrath of God was taken by Jesus and anyone who is part of the true church, who has saving faith in Jesus, will not experience the judgment or the wrath of God. And so I believe the church will be removed. But I also, and and, and when I say removed, sorry, I believe the church will be removed before God's judgment is poured out in a final seven-year period that's talked about in the book of the Revelation. And we just studied the book of the Revelation on Sunday morning, so you can go back and check those out. Uh, There is, if you go back in our podcast stream, there is one that's literally just called The Rapture, and I talk about that. I'm also not interested in fighting about it because I don't think it's 100% clear. I think it's there. I believe that the Bible talks about the rapture in, uh, in 1 Thessalonians. I believe that, that it's, a, it's a kind of a concept that is seen. But you know what? It's not 100% clear. It's, it's not. And you have things that are clear, like we're all sinners and that God has sent became a man and and lived among us and that Jesus died on the cross to forgive our sins. Those are clear things, but there are things that aren't clear. There are things that aren't in the Bible, but they're just part of the Christian experience because we've had to be pragmatic or traditions have built up, just like the school of the prophets. There are things that might be in the Bible. The rapture might be in the Bible. Uh, There are other things, like for example, when you're reading through this, um, you know, it's unclear. that Elisha, Elisha, you know, is, is there always supposed to be, you know, a handoff between one person and the next? That might be there. Elijah handed off to Elisha. Paul handed off to Timothy. Moses to Joshua. But there are other times where the handoff isn't like that. Saul did not hand off to David. Um, you know, we don't see Peter or John, while they had, we know like Polycarp was one of the people that was, you know, kind of discipled and trained under John the Apostle. It wasn't ever described like Paul and Timothy was or like Moses and Joshua. So what I'm saying is there are things that might be in the Bible. They may be there. Passing the mantle might be part of this. Did God rapture Elisha? Might be in the Bible. And we have things that are like that today. Uh, there's always debate. One of the classic debates within the church is what are the sacraments? Communion, Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call it, or baptism. And, and people will come with different verses and they'll say, hey, we think this is what we should do or what this means or where this is all about. There are theological views. For example, there's the debate between is God fully sovereign and we don't choose our salvation or does humanity have free will? And we do choose whether to accept or to reject Jesus. The Bible teaches both, by the way. But these things are things that are there, but they're not clear. Let's call them secondary issues. And then there are things that are clearly in the Bible. It was clear that God was going to take Elijah away. Everybody knew it. Elijah knew it. Elisha knew it. These other 
uh, company of prophets somehow knew it. We don't know how. We're not told, but somehow it had been made clear to everyone that Elijah's time was done. In the same way, there are things that are 100% clear. Non-negotiables of the faith. Generally speaking, the non-negotiables, the essential beliefs of the Christian faith are anything to do with Jesus, who he is and what he has done. That's why I could disagree with somebody about whether the rapture is real, even though I, I believe in it and I've taught about it, and I, I, but I could disagree with them and I could say, you know what, we just disagree. And, and as long as they didn't make their secondary disagreement uh, something to divide over with my secondary agreement with the idea of the rapture, we'd be fine. There are plenty of things like that that are non-negotiable, things that are, are, that are negotiable, things that are not negotiable. Closed-handed, we hold to these things firmly, are things to do with Jesus. For example, if somebody says that Jesus isn't God, he's only the Son of God, as the Muslims do, or sorry, as the Mormons do and the Jehovah's Witnesses do, we disagree with them and we break with them. That's why I can have disagreements theologically with different parts of the church and still say they're my sisters or my brothers because we believe the same essential non-negotiable things that the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons do not. Or, for example, let's say that someone says there is no son of God. God has no son, as the Muslims do. I have had great friendships, Muslim co-workers, Muslim neighbors. When I lived in England for, for about a year, I lived in a predominantly Muslim neighborhood. And I found them to be wonderful, warm people. And I'm thankful for my Muslim neighbors here in this community as well. But they are clear in their belief that there is no son. That Jesus is not God, nor the son of God. And so we have to break with them on that. These are non-negotiable things. If somebody says, Adam, I believe that Jesus is God. There's one God. He reveals himself in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. I believe that Jesus is Lord. The only way to be saved is by faith in Jesus because of what Jesus did on the cross and all the sins of the world were put on him and then he rose from the dead three days later. I said, great. And then they said, but I believe this other thing that you don't believe. It's a secondary issue. It's a non-negotiable. Well, we don't agree on that and that might make working together on certain things difficult or tricky. But you know what? You're my brother. You're my sister. There are things that aren't in the Bible. There are things that might be in the Bible. There are things that are clearly in the Bible. And then this whole world around us, we're trying to navigate these things. How should a church be structured? What about parachurch organizations? What about these church traditions that people hold to? Think about that. The sons of the prophets, the company of the prophets, when Elijah was taken up to heaven and Elisha comes back and they can see, they recognize, they testify that God has passed the ministry onto Elisha. What are they interested? First thing, they want to go find Elijah. They want to go and keep the old thing propped up, which might be just in their DNA when you think about it. If they were the kind of company of prophets who were started because you know, it was kind of keeping the old family business going or the heritage of, of a great-grandfather who had been an actual prophet, and they were just kind of keeping that legacy going. There are people who are just interested in keeping the legacy of the past alive, and they're not interested in what God is doing in the future. They want to focus on things that might be in the Bible or things that aren't in the Bible, but 
They want to keep those things going instead of just keeping the clear focus on Jesus and what is clear and what is known and what is going forward. How do we navigate all these divisions? Divisions between Baptists and Pentecostals, between Protestants and Catholics, between tradition and and moving forward. How do we figure out all these things? I have three things. Now, it's always nice when you can find the ones that always start with the same letter because then it's easy to remember. I couldn't. Two of them started with the same letter and the third one didn't. But how I navigate these things is this. Clarity, charity, and minding my own business. Clarity, charity, and minding my own business. And here's what I mean by that. I want to have clarity. I want to have clarity to understand, is this a thing that isn't in the Bible? So, or a thing that might be in the Bible or a thing that is clearly in the Bible? Is it a open-handed secondary issue that we can have disagreements on? Or is it a closed-handed issue, something that we have to hold fast to and we cannot disagree on? Or if, otherwise, we're going to have to separate. I want to have clarity to understand which those things are so that if there starts to be a debate or a disagreement or an uncertainty, I can, I can kind of say, hey, you know what? This is one of those things that's either not in the Bible or it might be in the Bible. And so we're going to have a lot of we're going to be open-handed, and we're going to have some wiggle room here. Otherwise, there are things that are clearly in the Bible, and that's the kind of thing I'll stand firm on. So I want to have clarity about what that kind of thing is. Next, I want to have charity, and what I mean by that is this. I want to have charity. Let's say it's something that might be in the Bible. Let's say it's something that the Bible could be teaching, and there's disagreement about it. And there are plenty of things that have disagreement, plenty of parts of the Bible where we don't agree fully. What do I do then? Can I have charity in my heart to say that somebody I disagree with isn't evil, isn't uh, malicious, isn't out to get anyone? In fact, there are people who I agree with fully theologically who I do think are malicious, who I do think are using the church or the Bible for their own selfish intentions. And there are people over there who I have great disagreements with who I think are genuine and doing the, the right thing as best as they know and their intentions are, are as true as they can be and all of that. So I want to have charity. I was having a conversation with a friend this week about Orthodox Christianity, the Eastern Orthodox Church. And our church has people of all kinds of backgrounds. We have people that grew up Lutheran, people that grew up Baptist, people like me who grew up non-denominational, people who grew up Catholic, and people who grew up in the Orthodox Church. We're not knocking anybody. Faith on Hill is a church where a bunch of people from a bunch of different backgrounds just came together and said, we want to know about Jesus. We want to know about the good news of Jesus. We want to know what the Bible says because it teaches us about Jesus. We know that Jesus has saved us from our sins and we want to know him. But if you go to an Orthodox church, and I've been to an Orthodox church service, beautiful, beautiful service, beautiful people. But they have these icons up, pictures of old saints, and they venerate them, they honor them in a way that makes me uncomfortable, in a way that I don't agree with, in a way that I would say is kind of bordering, if not outright idolatry. But when I've talked to brothers and sisters in the Orthodox church, what they would say is this, we don't worship these icons, these pictures, but we venerate them. We honor them. Now, do I think that there is a big difference between venerating and worshiping? No, I think it's a, I, I agree with, uh, oh, I forget if it was Luther or Calvin, one of the reformers who said that it was a difference without distinction. I agree with that. But can I have the charity in my heart to say, you know what, for them it seems to be different. And even if I can't understand the difference, and maybe there isn't a difference, but they believe there's a difference, can I have the charity in my heart to say that maybe 
they're trying their best with what they've been given? I hope so. You know, a charismatic or a Pentecostal who's on the extreme side and says, you have to speak in tongues to show that you are full of the Holy Spirit. I don't agree with that. I, I disagree strongly. And I've spoken in tongues, and I believe that I've been filled with the Holy Spirit. But I don't believe that that's the only sign or mark that a person has been baptized or filled with the Holy Spirit. But can I have charity in my heart to say that this person, while mistaken, I believe, is my brother or my sister, and just wants people to know the fullness of God? I want to have clarity. Is this a non-negotiable, closed-handed issue, or is this an open-handed issue we can disagree about? I want to have charity. Even in our disagreements, can I believe the best about somebody? And I want to mind my own business. What I mean by that is this. I can sit around all day and dissect the doctrines of this person or that person. Or I can say, what is it that I know to be true? And what is it that I believe that God has taught me in the Bible and the Holy Spirit's leading me to do? And I'm just going to focus on that. And as I have clarity, hopefully, charity, yes, please, and I try my best to mind my own business, I want to be on board with what God is doing. Because that's the big thing that stands out to me, is that Elisha is the new guy. He's the guy that God has raised up and has called and has empowered to take over the ministry that Elijah had. And the company of the prophets, they just wanted to go find Elijah and keep the old thing going. One of the things that happens when we emphasize things that aren't in the Bible is that we just try to keep the old thing going. Now, there are times where we have to be pragmatic and we have to do stuff uh, in a certain way that's not really in the Bible, but we're just trying our best, fine. But what I mean is if we emphasize traditions, practices, uh, even theological positions that may not be in the Bible or, or are debatable points, usually what happens is we're just trying to keep the old thing going. I want to be clear and charitable, and minding my own business, focused on what God's called me to do and, and, and what I know to be true. And at the same time, I want to be moving on to what God is doing going forward. And, and let's say that that challenges our traditions, that challenges the way that we knew how to do church or we knew how to live within the faith. But it's not unbiblical. It's not evil. It's just something different. It's just what's moving forward. I don't want to be like the company of the prophets who are interested in holding up the old thing. I want to say, hey, these things are clear. And I'm going to focus on those. And I can see clearly what God is doing. And I want to move forward with him. Now, where does that leave all of us? Friends, let me say this. If you're not a believer, uh, the, the, the basic message of the Christian faith is this. We were created by God. However God created us, whether it was in six literal days, as some believe, or whether it was through evolutionary purposes over long periods of time, as others believe, however it happened, God created people. And people fell into sin and rebellion against God, and that led to death. And justice is needed. And God set about to rescue his creation. And he became a man, Jesus Christ. And he died, even though he was fully innocent and had no sin, he died a sinner's death, and all of the sins of the world were placed on him. And God the Father accepted it and said, that, that satisfies my justice. And Jesus rose from the dead three days later, and he told his followers, I will send the Holy Spirit, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So the message of the Christian faith is this. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is clear. There's no uncertainty within the Bible on that one. 
The message of the Christian faith is that the only way for a person to have a right relationship with God is through Jesus Christ. John chapter 14, verse 6. That's clear. There's no debate. And as we come into faith, as we come into belief, as we start to say, okay, I want to be done with this life of sin and rebellion and I'm going to follow Jesus. Then there are these other things that aren't as clear. And we work our way through them. That's a process. It's a lifelong process called sanctification, being made more like Jesus. We work our way through them. You know what? When I, when I started playing guitar, I've been playing guitar for, oh gosh, over 25 years, almost 30 years. I didn't know how to play what I play now. You just learned the basic chords and you kind of just tried to figure it out. But it was all right. You were playing guitar. The same thing is true with faith. You don't know everything, but you know that Jesus is good and that you know that Jesus has forgiven your, you of your sins and you know that Jesus is changing you. That's the message of the Christian faith. For people who grew up in the church or have been around the church, but they're like, wait a minute, I am confused because the church I was a part of made a big deal about things that might be in the Bible or aren't in the Bible. And I just want Jesus, but I, I can't hang. There's an invitation to come back to Jesus and just say, Jesus, I know there's a lot of junk out there, but help me to focus on the things that are clear. And for those of us who are walking with the Lord, for those of us who are actively following Jesus, do we bring the crystal clear things of the, the message of the Christian faith? Or do we focus on side things that aren't clear or may not even be in the Bible? Oh man, that's the challenge that we have to work through. I know this, the Holy Spirit of God leads us into truth. And I trust that he will continue to lead us into truth. And I want to have charity for people who are at a different place in their journey or have come to a different opinion about a secondary issue. And I want to mind my own business, which means just focus on, hey, how am I walking with God? And then just what is God doing? If you're not a believer, right now God is calling you to faith in Jesus. If we, for those of us who are believers, right now God is calling us to walk deeper and fuller with more love and grace. As we go forward in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray amen, and we'll see you next week. The gospel truth in which we stand, the perfect life, the saving death of just one man.